0: What are some things that Christians without a Jewish background miss from the Sermon on the Mount? Do Jesus' five sermons in the book of Matthew correlate to the five books of the law? What is the Jude? Murdoch sits down with special guest Brittany Tinney and they discuss these questions and more on this episode of Your Church Friends.
1: All right, welcome back, church friends. This is Murdoch, and joining me today is not Chris, but my longtime internet became in-life friend, uh, Brittany. So, hi, Brittany, if you can say hi to everybody.
0: Hey, everybody.
1: So, I've just as I said, known Brittany online through friends of friends, just different Bible discussion groups and different stuff. And there have been a lot of good discussions over the years. Last year, we got to meet in Maryland with a bunch of other friends, and that was just a great time. But I'm going to give a minute just for you to introduce yourself. You can let our listeners know anything about yourself. Well, maybe not Um, anything, but you know, (laughs) somewhat pertinent.
0: That's good to know. Thanks for clarifying. My name is Brittany. Um, I currently reside in Indiana. I actually met Renadoc through a friend online, and we've kind of been chatting ever since. We've had an interesting connection just with um, our conversations because both of us have been interested in, I think, deeper parts of what scripture had to say more so than just like, let's argue about topical matter or who's right and wrong. It's like, wow, what is the spirit of the Lord really trying to get at here? And so I was really drawn to those conversations because I hadn't really had a whole lot of people to talk to about where I'm coming from in my faith that I didn't want to argue and uh, where he's coming from and his transition into pastoral mode and uh, my transition out of ministry kind of went hand in hand so that was interesting but um, a little bit about me I'm married I've been married for 10 almost 11 years now I have two adopted children and I did ministry for two years before Or we took in another, um, another teen and he was involved in a lot of really not so good things, but we took him out of care and just gave him like a safe place for a year to rehab. And now we're in Zionsville, Indiana, which Zionsville for the believers, I'm kind of interested (laughs) in that. And now I'm like, okay, God, I went out of Zion. Thank you. But I'm, I'm ready to move again. (laughs) But yeah, um, I'm just kind of a, normal person I mean normal used as loosely as possible but someone who really is just inspiring to know more about scripture and goes through the same ups and downs I think I have my hills and valleys just like everybody else and just inspiring to what Yeshua has for me as a wife as a mother as a believer and honestly in the world that we're currently living in as a citizen of not just this earth but of heaven within this earth.
1: Yes, exactly. Those have been a lot of uh, off air conversations that Chris and I have had about the citizenship in heaven. And just like that is where our citizenship, that's our home. Yeah. So you touched on a couple things. Uh, One, you said like, I was in ministry for a couple years and then you kind of came into what came out of that. But I think that your ministry experience, every time you tell me something about it, there's something else that you're telling me. I'm like, whoa, that was pretty intense and cool and intriguing all at the same time. So from that, and then you talked about your perspective in scripture and how me and you have kind of been able to come alongside and not fight each other about who's right or wrong, but definitely try to get to the bottom of some stuff. So Maybe if you can just do real quick, what were you doing in ministry? And then kind of what is this unique perspective?
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, So I worked for um, a ministry called CCO, which is Coalition for Christian Outreach. And they operate out of the East Coast, which is way far away from you. And so I was doing a lot of work um, in Pennsylvania. And I was stationed in Indiana. And that's what brought me from Missouri to Indiana, which Indiana is my home anyway, so it just brought me back home. But I worked with college students, and what I did during that time was mostly discipleship programs. So uh, I had an interesting take on ministry even in that. I worked at a community college, and I was partnered with the only um, organization in our ministry, which was about 300 uh, networking churches. The only organization that wasn't a church was my partnership. And so I had this immediate tension that was between a secular partnership and a secular campus and this ministry that is not with them. And I'm like, okay, God, what am I doing here? This is not what I had in mind ever. And so, yeah, my main goal was how can I love college students and get them to read scripture and be excited about this thing that they think is like dead and confusing. And so that's what I did. I did small groups, one-on-one discipleship programs. Um, I met with students once, twice, sometimes three times a week, depending on what they wanted to do, what we were reading, what we were studying. I had the coolest time with one of my students named Connor, where we walked through the entire book of Genesis together and literally had whiteboards and so many days of just genealogy. So we tracked the entire line from Adam to Moses and how that was going to fit into our Messiah. And it was three months worth of just wonderful, interesting scripture, scripture, like that's the type of exegetical study I wanna do is let's map genealogy to Christ. And so that's so, where
1: you say your exit you were exiting from college ministry as I was entering into college ministry, college and career. And yeah. yeah, it is a very exciting and deep and enriching ministry to be in. And I'm sure that when my students hear this podcast and hear you talking, they're gonna be like, Hey Murdoch, how about your friend Brittany comes <laughs> over here to belong? I was like, Trust me, I've been trying to get them to move to California for years.
0: Trust me, if my husband to get on board, I'd be there.
1: Tomorrow. Okay. So you keep bringing up Yeshua. You're talking about tracking to Moses and how the Messiah ties in. What's your unique perspective as we get into this conversation on the Sermon on the Mount that kind of the, the, your perspective where you're coming from?
0: Okay. So this is really hard to explain to people who really just want to put titles on things. So, um, what's I try to come from, huh?
1: I said, then what's the title? You can start there.
0: Well, that's the problem is I don't like giving it. So I am not Jewish when it comes to like the actual faith of Judaism. I have Jewish background. And I honestly, that is even foreign to me because I was raised in such a secular home that was so beyond faith that like, it. it's not something I was raised with or brought up with. But to know that there's roots there got me excited that I had something that I wanted to look into when I was in college. And I went to a private liberal arts school, because I got saved when I was in high school. And when God started revealing his word to me, I was super excited about just the transforming quality of scripture and that God is bigger than our circumstances. God is bigger than what we preach or what we teach. There was just this aspect of it that was so much greater to me. So as I started digging in and looking at the scripture, I was always super interested in study and in like, well, what does this mean? How does this connect? What were the people of the day hearing? What were they teaching? I've always had that interest and I didn't really know um, how to reconcile it with what churches taught. So um, I had a friend in college who was a um, evangelical and Jewish individual. So their mother was an evangelical Christian and their father was a uh, Jewish believer and they were into what we would probably titled the messianic Judaism. I don't know how most people title, I think they call it messianic
1: Jews. Yeah, I think so. uh, but there's that's yeah, how there's I describe Jews. you to people when I have to put a label on it.
0: Okay. So yeah, yeah there's like the Jews for Jesus and the Jewish voice and all of them. And so they they would um so messianic believers they call them that and it's like I'm really careful with the lines there because I don't want to offend either sides of this equation. Because there really are one family built on the same rock, built on the same law, built on the same product. And so I'm really, really careful there because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was raised a Gentile. I mean, I was into witchcraft. I was into so many horrible things that like Yahweh himself would have despised. And so like, I can't step out there and be like, I am this Jewish person understanding this fully because how I was raised doesn't give me that insight. But, um, yeah, so I uh, do relate a lot to a lot of the ancient Near East stuff. I got really into studying it. I respect Jewish people highly. And um, I also mourn and weep for them because most of the people who have been given the original promise and have been really immersed in this beautiful story that God intended to send His his Messiah, his answer, they don't even know their mm-hmm. Messiah. They don't know the answer. And so my heart really, really goes out. I have a lot of Muslim friends, a lot of Jewish uh, friends and acquaintances. And yeah, I want to go to Israel very badly. And my heart is there. And you'll probably hear that as I speak, it gets stuck there as I don't know how to appropriately say like, man, I really just want to reach these people. But obviously it's the spirit of the Lord that goes before us and reaches the hearts of those who he has called. So I am just kind of in a waiting period in my life, trying to uh, reconcile everything that God has brought together. And that weird thing that Murdoch is talking about is, uh, yeah, we do accept the entire New Testament as canon. And we also accept the entire Old Testament as canon. And so in that, it looks a little bit different for for someone who is practicing kosher laws as a new covenant believer, for someone who believes that the feast seasons are completely relevant to us as new covenant believers. And so that's where I stand. And hearing the words of Yeshua in Matthew 5 through 7 as we enter the Sermon on the Mount, as we know it, it's probably going to come interesting to hear a different perspective on some of it. But uh, this is what I don't think this is like the most important thing. I just think this is so beautifully framed that as we get into Matthew and the staging of this, I think a lot of people start to understand what the intention of the Messianic era was being brought forth when Yeshua steps onto this platform and a modern Western believer misses some of the key elements to him stepping into the story.
1: Right. So based on that, I mean... I would just love to keep going on that conversation. I'm like, man, what was your aha moment? Because you're saying that you just really wanted to be studious and get in. So that meant that there was probably a problem got put before you where you were trying to figure out like, okay, God, I want to know you better. What do I do with this thing? And then the aha moment comes to where God reveals himself in that situation. And then you follow through and just hearing to you talk, right? You're talking about Yeshua. So even talking about Jesus, you're going with Yeshua, right? going into the Hebrew languaging and stuff and the feasts and the different laws and bringing that in. But I do want to kind of skip that aha moment, maybe save that for for later another time, but get into, as you were saying, since you've gone through that process and gone through the studious work of coming to be able to approach God in this way, what is the groundwork that maybe as an evangelical without a Jewish background, like what would we be missing coming into the Sermon on the Mount? To kind of, if you were to continue on that thought that you were just having, like what would we be missing?
0: I think the, um, so when I read, I think from a very um, ancient Near East perspective. And if I could attack on a master's to my already existing one, I'd probably go back for ancient Near East. So I would think that understanding is where we have to start. And so, first and foremost, when you are entering into Matthew 5, a Jewish person reading this is not going to miss the connection between the mountain. So think of it this way. When I read Matthew 5, the first thing I see is I'm like, wow, the Messiah, this this proclaiming Messiah has taken a group of people up to a mountain. Where else do we see a mountain that is so relevant? Where else do we hear a wall given on a mountain? And so I think you have to frame the Sermon on the Mount with exactly that, because I don't think it's accidental that Matthew actually sets up his entire book this way. And so, I'm going to point out a couple things in Matthew. One of them kind of skips over the sermon on the mount, but I'm just going to briefly touch on it is so the sermon on the mount first is only one of five sermons that Matthew frames, okay? And so if you look at Matthew as a book and you're entering into him as a Jewish like person, he is actually our Jewish gospel giver. So, he's coming from it from a Jewish lens to a Jewish audience. Well, Yeshua is taking his disciples up to the mountain and he's giving them this reissuing almost of God's law, right? So you have exactly the same setting. It seems that Matthew, is—he's he, he is forcing this knowledge almost when you read the set and the setting of Matthew, that he has divided Yeshua's sermons into five and he's up on a mountain in his very first one. So we're automatically drawn back to the book of the, you know, the, the giving of the law, of Moses on Mount Sinai. As we exit into Exodus, you have this whole scene of the Jewish people going through the wilderness and Moses going up on the mountain and getting the law of God. And you have five books of the law. And anyone who's a Torah reader and anyone who's immersed in, you know trying to understand the Torah. We go through the, the five books of the law all year long. That's what we do. The Torah portions are very beneficial to my, my Shabbat. We do that every week. So a Jewish believer is going to come to this, and they're going to probably realize more so than an evangelical believer, they're like, okay, Matthew literally divides his book into five sermons, and he starts them on a mountain.
1: Okay, couple of questions before we continue. Do those five sermons correlate to the five books of the law? Is there any matchup there? And then also you you use the word Shabbat. What is Shabbat? <laughs> you Shabbat need to translate is, um, for some of us, right?
0: Sorry. Uh, Shabbat is Sabbath. A lot of Yiddish people say Shavos or whatnot. Um, you get the difference between the Yiddish and the Hebrew there. But Shabbat is, well, one of the commandments. God asks us to honor his Sabbath and to keep it holy. And so Shabbat would be the word used there. Yeah, I think in every other culture, Most people celebrate it on Saturday for convenience and they call them Saturday Sabbatarians or there's entire law on that too, but I don't get into like law abiding and like what the world has to say about these things so much as God said, honor and keep it holy. So we do once a week, we do Shabbat.
1: Okay. Yeah. Just again, as you're speaking, it's just coming out of you. So I want to be able to make, you know, connect these different points. For our audience, Stop but
0: ask because sometimes I'll just like not even.
1: But yeah, is there a correlation between the five sermons to the five books? Is it like oh, the first one relates to Genesis or anything like that, or is am I trying to draw a correlation that's not there?
0: Honestly, I would have to look more deeply into that specifically. That's not a bad question at all. I know that obviously you have the mountain, the mountain, the five sermons, the five books, and then um, it starts with the beatitudes. So one thing that I noticed immediately is. The Beatitudes, if you're looking at it in this God giving of the law perspective, and uh, Yeshua being this new lawgiver, like setting this new precedent, then yeah, you immediately see the Beatitudes, which they echo the blessings in Deuteronomy 28, almost like they're echoing those blessings. So Deuteronomy 28, I think it's 1 through 14. I know it obviously starts in verse 1, but I think it goes through verse 14. Those echo the Beatitudes that we're seeing pretty clearly. And the blessings and whatnot. So that I know that's one parallel that I drew. And the next sermon, I, I don't know if any of this will help anybody, but it's at the end of at the end of chapter seven, you see the and when he was done speaking. That statement's used five times, and that's after 11, 1, 13, 53, 19, 1, and 26, 1. So those are the five dividing points that that they're there and i would i'd have to go because i was just focusing mostly on the sermon on the mount for this one i didn't actually go and parallel them and i don't think i've ever naturally read it that way
1: it's just just wondering it was just a curious point you brought that up and sometimes i know that when i do bible study god does that cool thing sometimes the how things break down and they line up and it just gives that even deeper parallelism and understanding
0: and you know after this I'll probably look into that because that's super interesting. It <laughs> intrigued me and I was like, heck, I wonder if when we look at 1-1, that point of the next one, I wonder if that aligns more with the next book, but I don't know that it will just because I think that Matthew is just trying to make a point to the Jewish audience by summing up their law and what they knew. And obviously, you know, you have to think of this from the writer's perspective. They didn't have the they didn't have the testamental literature. They didn't have this common knowledge that, oh, my words are going to go down into this book. No, there was the Torah. And so when Matthew frames this to a Jewish audience, he's framing it from the perspective of what seems like to me, don't take this as obviously thus saith the Lord, but it seems like the perspective of, of how do I make my audience realize that this person is on par with Moses. And we see that throughout Matthew where he is the the new Moses, you know, he is coming and giving this. And the Pharisees obviously are up in arms and the leaders and scholars are like, heresy, blasphemy. Well, yes, because there is such a difference about his speaking that honestly, when you ask me the question you asked me, you're like, oh, how do people read this so differently? And I said, I texted you back and I said, you're not going to like my answer because my answer is really, there's not, much of a way to misinterpret the Sermon on the Mount, even without this beautiful knowledge that I'm giving you that, you know, this setting and it parallels so beautifully with the five books of the law and that obviously Matthew's trying to make a point here that this Messiah is the thing we've been waiting for. Like he's making a point by connecting it to something they know and read in the synagogues that they know surely what is going on, paralleling it to Deuteronomy. And yeah, it's, it's just this thing that he himself is trying to wrap up in one whole book. But overall, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, just five, five through seven, chapters five through seven, and you don't have any of this background, you're still going to understand that there is this teacher, the sage, this prophet, forget that you know who Yeshua is even, or that Jesus is your Messiah. Just you read this and you, you kind of understand that there's this guy coming and an authority teaching something.
1: Right. And it's he... hard
0: to misunderstand what he's saying. It's really hard.
1: Yeah, he stands alone. Like, obviously, all of the background information can just make it that much more rich, but it's a message that can go to anybody at any time throughout history that as long as it's you know translated into a language they can understand i mean jesus can just speak directly into each and every one of our lives and i think the fact that as we look at this sermon you know over 2000 years later and it still is applying and we are still humans seeking to follow and just being you know enlightened by this wisdom and this authority of jesus yeah i think that that's great like what you're hearing have any questions for us or prayer requests? Got an idea for a future show? Hop on your device and send us an email at yourchurchfriendsgmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: And I honestly think that, just from my perspective, it's so beautiful that if you think about why the Messiah had to come, it was because there is so much tainting and twisting of the law and the giving of the law. Throughout history, you have man trying so hard to grasp at what this is. The Israelites are trying constantly to grasp at who they're serving, why they do it in the face of all of these other gods, how they do it. And sure, God has given them some instructions, but they're always trying to put these extra sets of rules and, like, well, here's how we do it. Obviously, it poses questions, and they're trying to answer those questions of how to serve God. And you have um, Yeshua step into the picture literally and say, I'm telling you, like all these answers that you've been trying to define, like everything he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount isn't Torah per se. I mean, it's things that are addressed, but it's mostly what man has had to say on that. It's like he's coming and revisiting the common, I guess, the adulterated version, and he's like unadulterating what God's law was intended for. He's coming back to here's the law as my father intended it.
1: Right. So that's kind of as Chris and I were talking about it in our episodes going through chapter five and really in just bringing it to how you were saying the deeper truth beyond it. He was going deeper into our lives like, okay, don't murder. That's good. Like you're not going to go out and kill somebody, physically kill them, but look at where the root of that is within you, right? Right. He's bringing that the law was supposed to penetrate down into that point versus just having these external things. And then I think that, when there's external things and you're trying to keep people following those, that's where extra rules come in because it's, right. you know,
0: and you know it's, it's interesting that you say that. That's actually a lot of what I talked about is the purpose for Jesus talking, the purpose why Yeshua was speaking, because obviously he's not, he didn't accidentally take them up to this mountain. I, I can't believe that. Like there's this framework that we have there. So in doing so, he's making this point, like I said, like, hey, I am on par with the law of Moses. I am mm-hmm. one with the Father, and He says that in Matthew five. I'm one with the Father, and He and the His whole point in even speaking. We see through Matthew. We see through Mark. Mark obviously is focused more on actions and less on words. But you see through mostly Matthew and Luke specifically this lens of someone who truly is coming to fulfill the law. And in Hebrew, fulfill and obey are the same thing. So his lifestyle actually sets forth to. Obey this law and not to denounce it or cast it down. And he says that in Matthew 5, which is why I get super heated. And we had fun stories and breaking out the Hebrew at Angel's House in Maryland, and you know, getting out the beautiful books and reading the originals. And so that's kind of I go back to though, like the Jews are grasping. We have this stage set where the Jews are grasping for what is it? What what is it to follow this thing? And you have that tension throughout history where the, the Jews have always pretty much been interested in figuring it out. And then you have the story of the Babylonian exile where we enter into this after period where we get the Babylonian Talmud from. And mm-hmm. that's what everyone knows as the Talmud. That's the laws and the presets that a lot of the sages and Pharisees and uh, teachers of the time commentated for people who don't know what the Talmud is. But before the Babylonian exile, as we see mostly in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they have like a difficult time embracing Yahweh and the fact that he had the exclusive right to their loyalty and they obviously are constantly called adulterous and whatever. So you have that history. So after exile, it became like very sudden that, oh, we need this God, we need what was given to us by our forefathers, and so they embrace the law to a fault, and they begin to embrace God and his commandments so seriously that they're putting all of these extra things on them, and that's where we get the Babylonian Talmud at, is after that exile. This posed a serious question for the Jews of uh, Yeshua's time, and that serious question is, I think, what he comes and really tackles, and that is, what does it mean to keep God's commandments? period. Like, that's what they were tackling when they wrote the Talmud. That was the purpose of all their efforts, is what does this mean? We're grappling with this deep question, and the heart of that question is beautiful. But the outpouring of that question ended up getting messy as humans tried deciphering how to do God's law.
1: So do you see this as, I'm I'm tracking with you, but then it's like, so do you see Jesus coming, then And as he's speaking this, he's like shirking off, taking off, removing all of this excess weight that was put on by the Talmud and put on, you know, just by people trying to be like, here's how you do it. And people putting on other people, here's how it is that you need to do it. And then Jesus comes and he lives this spirit life. And he's talking from that point. And as you said earlier, that you're a new covenant believer, the new covenant being the covenant of the spirit, right? So he's coming. Is that kind of where we get that? you know, the the law is like, it's good to follow God's law, but how you do it is in the spirit. And that's what Jesus is showing.
0: Yeah. And that's where like, you know, it's, it's important to understand where the Jews are coming from, which is why I say all that. It's important to understand their setting and their, because honestly, it's their understanding and their assumptions of what it was to keep the law, which was defined by their sages and their leaders, which are coming out of this, you know, exile and developing the system based on How do we be closer to God through this? And the tension was never between Jesus teaching, like, how do I put this? So obviously there's tension with the Pharisees there, but it was never between the prevailing sentiment, I guess is the best way to put it. So it wasn't whether the law had authority or not, because he clearly believes the law has authority. What he doesn't believe is that the, like, the man-made customs and the things that they've built around and a, a, a Jew would call it um, hedges. They put hedges around themselves so that they won't fall or be tempted in these areas and that, but that takes away that grace component that takes away that. And they do, they call it hedges around their heart, hedges around the law
1: yeah so, evangelicals have taken that and you we want a hedge of protection that's often a prayer right so that's kind of cool yes. to get that background well, to it.
0: do that but like what they would prayer as a sentimental prayer in the in the west a jew takes as this very rigorous thing and like especially an orthodox jew would say i'm placing this hedge around myself like it's a it's a hedge of a hedge around the wall so, it so that hedge them from is going like- out so yeah. it's like
1: the law goes this far, but I'm taking on these extra things just to make sure that I'm not wondering like how close to the line can I get? I'm making sure that I'm far right. away from the line, but ignoring so the fact incident. that God made the line so that we could be, yeah.
0: Yes. And the the line was so we could be protected and we could be safe. And the line was that so we could have guidance and we could, you know, we could know God without poisoning ourselves and dying. We could uh, have a relationship with this loving father and not of the gods of the time that were slave master mindset. And so Yeshua is coming to break that adulterated version of the law that through history was skewed and tampered with by man-made laws and rules. of. And it was, like I said, it's like, I feel, I feel where they're coming from. And I get on a deep spiritual level why they'd want to protect such a beautiful and sacred thing. But when we go to the extent of protecting it by, for instance, uh, Shabbat, so, Shabbat's supposed to be for rest, and those of us who have read Mark and most of the New Testament understand that when Yeshua teaches about Shabbat, he's healing on Shabbat and he's doing things that he doesn't consider work, but the Pharisees do, and so mm-hmm. it's like where's this tension coming from, and that's why they are constantly believing he is against the law of Moses when it's like he's actually this pure form of what God intended, and he works on Shabbat in the manner, not like goes to a job but you know he heals on Shabbat he walk, he walks in the grain fields with the disciples things that was against their tradition of the time and so we read you know in Mark specifically and blatantly where it says you know Shabbat was made for man not man for Shabbat it was made for us right. we were not made for it and that gives you this whole different heart on why God's laws that's that's not just Shabbat it's why God's laws like why did he put them in place but that's a you know that's a totally don't get me on that topic. I will never stop. Okay. So, well, can let's I go I, back to I know, just. I said let's go back to framing this. And now that you and all the listeners have more of an understanding of you know the Jewish culture and context, like it's easier for me to say. Obviously, like I don't think other than that, like framing it in a different way and the way it's read and the way people want to read like their own lens on it. I don't think there's any way to misrepresent or misinterpret because that's how we got here was do people misinterpret this? Do they teach it completely and left field from how a messianic believer or, you know, even a Jew would come to this? And I do think the only difference would be framing from the Torah, which most Westerners don't possess. They don't have that understanding. And then I think the other part is they don't really understand in a Western mentality the connection to the law that is beautiful and they they think it's this binding and awful thing well that's not what yeshua was getting at i hear what
1: you're saying and i think that in hearing you talk and it makes a lot of sense but there is a thing when we're looking at how it may be taught in a messianic audience versus a largely evangelical audience when you're saying it seems like there's no way to read this any other way when we get to Matthew 5 verses 17 and onwards, I think that little section right there is really where a big crux of it comes down to that when I look at like my life as a believer versus your life as a believer to really on the daily and weekly and, you know, monthly seasonal type thing to where differences come in that as, you know, I see you posting various things, you are like, you know, what you're celebrating with your family and, and doing. But in those verses, We have Jesus coming and saying, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, which you were talking about fulfilling, meaning obeying, right? It says, for truly, Mm -hmm. I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of one of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaching these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This that... is my
0: favorite <laughs> section of Matthew, Mary. I just, I love it. Like just hearing you read just makes me so excited. Okay. So for people who are listening who don't realize Matthew 5 is the chapter that most of the Hebrew Roots movement bases their entire existence off of. I am not of the Hebrew Roots movement. I'm not saying I'm for or against them. I'm just, I do have friends that are a part of the Hebrew Roots movement, which typically are a bunch of people from non-Jewish background who really want to dig further in. They have a very pure heart. Sometimes it gets taken way out of context and they lose the grace aspect of the gospel, which is a lot of what the Pharisees. Missed so Hebrew roots do take chapter five, and so if you're doing ministry with people who are Hebrew roots, if you're doing ministry with a Jew coming to this, you need to understand that chapter five is a huge controversial subject. What you just read is a lot of what throws people off because what you said our daily lives look differently because of how we interpret this. And but I want to back up, I wanted to say that because it's important for people to know where they get their theology, and I wanted to back up and say. For me when I came into reading this, like let's let's dig into it. Let's go through you just read that, but we have to frame the chapter based on what is he coming from. Well, before the sermon starts, he says in 4:17 I believe, which is let me find it. 4:17. From that time on Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So you, I, I frame 417, first of all, that's what John the Baptist comes preaching, right? The Elijah, Elisha concept of the forerunner of Christ, which is what Mark blatantly tells us right out the gate, but you have right here in 417 what I feel like the framework for the entire sermon is, and that the kingdom, the kingdom mindset. You have this beautiful kingdom theology, and he says, repent in light of the coming kingdom, which is here, which is me which is what I'm talking about. And he's like, I'm bringing this kingdom to you. And so, like I said, Matthew does a good job of presenting this in a format that Jews understood, like setting Mm -hmm. this form to where they understood. But Yeshua does a good way, the way he speaks is, here's this thing that you are gonna hear for three years, repent. And I think that that's setting up chapters five through seven which end up being the ethics of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Like what are the outpouring? What are the things that the kingdom mindset entails? Because you have um, the Hebrew word is uh, shuv, S-S-H-U-V, S-H-U-V, shuv uh, for turn, repent. And that's the word that you see uses turn. Like do this turnaround because the kingdom is here. And in doing this turnaround, it's what what am I forsaking? And what am I giving up? What am I turning to and from? to achieve not in a works manner but to achieve this kingdom identity and honestly as you dive into that that's that that was I sat with that for like a whole half hour and just was like wow how beautiful that you know you're framing this on kingdom ethics and if you go into it with that mindset even dropping everything we just talked about like of history going into a kingdom mindset knowing that this Messiah has come what does his kingdom look like then you're already reading it from a beautiful perspective. So yeah, five starts out immediately right out the gate. Kingdom ethics, if we think about it from that form, then you have to understand that the form of Matthew 5 through 7 is completely familiar to the audience. It's saying in sayings of sages. So Yeshua being a sage for all intents and purposes, I'm not announcing his messiahship, but sayings of a sage. So you got the Proverbs and the parables coming here. And then you have the oracles of the prophet, which are the woe to you, woe to you. And you see that and some Mm -hmm. of the beatitudes, and moving forward. And then um, Midrash, those are the three, that's the form of most writings and most like prophetic speakings, most prophets of the time.
1: Okay. So what is Midrash?
0: It's basically someone or something that explains scripture text. So I actually, in reading through this, I made a note that said, Oh, where did I put it? Because my husband laughed at it. It says Matthew 5, 21 through 48 is Midrashian. Like uh, Jesus is being a Midrashian. He's explaining scripture.
1: Would that be like what we would call it commentary?
0: Yes, basically. Uh, The Midrash is commentary on the Talmud, commentary on scripture. Basically, that's what Jewish sages did is they provided Midrash, which was a commentation on scripture so that they could understand it and create laws and hedges. Right, right. You know, great format. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's the setup though you have. You have the sayings of the sage, you have the oracles of the prophet and you have the midrash. So his audience literally was like, yeah, that's a teacher. We understand. The difference is, is you have Yeshua teaching who says things like, amen I say to you. And they're like, what? <laughs> because in what world does any person have the authority to say this is true before I even say it? Like I am, and so that's why at the end of Matthew 7, it actually concludes with that they were so let me read it so I don't like butcher it, but the very end of Matthew 7, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority and not as the other teachers of the law. So You automatically, when you finish this, you realize that this sermon isn't what perplexed them. It wasn't the teaching that threw them off. It wasn't like what he was saying that was odd. It was the authority that he taught with that they were perplexed by. That's what changes the Beatitudes in many of his other sermons is he comes with an authority that is to the Pharisees, heresy and blasphemy. But to anyone who knew him was a declaration of his identity. I mean, who else is going to stand and say, I am the new Moses? I, you know.
1: I'm the new Moses. And I've never heard that put before. Like, hey, I'm telling you that I have the authority to say this before I even say what it is. I forget how you just said that, but that's a fun way of looking at it. I know that we are kind of coming towards the end of the time and there's a lot that we could get into. But when we were talking beforehand, you said that you were very excited about the yod. Hey guys, so sorry to interrupt, but have you considered giving the Your Church Friends podcast a five-star rating? When you do this, it makes it easier for others to find the podcast when they are searching for something new to listen to. We really appreciate your stars and support. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, you were reading that and I was like, yes, not one more away." I have to tell you this, my favorite, favorite thing to get into. And you're going to just hear me light up because this is the best story. Okay, so the Beatitudes happen and I'm going to kind of go straight through this really quickly, as quickly as I can to get to the story. So it frames well, but the Beatitudes happen and it was literary form was common in the Beatitudes, you know, from the Tanakh, Psalms 1, like I said, and from the blessings in Deuteronomy 28. And you have the overall message is the kingdom belongs to the broken. That's what the Beatitudes are telling us. Kingdom belongs to the broken. The kingdom belongs to the least of these. The kingdom belongs to the lesser. Okay. So we frame that. And then you get into salt and light. The next thing Yeshua gets into is salt and light, which basically, fun side story, is Rabbi uh, Tarfan, Rabbi Tarfan, he was asked this question by his students and they say to him, what do you do with tasteless salt as they're reading through some of this? Because Yeshua says, like, you know, don't be tasteless salt. Don't be invisible light, basically. It's like, these are useless. What are these good for? And he's defining who we are by saying we are the salt of the earth. We are, we have the identity. And what he's doing there is he's actually making a radical statement of the salt is no longer the thing in the temple because they used to actually call the salt in the temple, t- the, the salt of the covenant because they'd salt their uh, sacrifices. So salt was so sacred that they used it in the temple. And the this rabbi knew this, and he this is a non-Messianic rabbi, so understand where this guy's going to be coming from. But when Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth, he is then taking the Jerusalem temple out of the picture and saying, my temple, my message, my sacrifice, the salt is now you guys. You guys are going to be what brings this healing and restoration, not the temple.
1: Wow. I've never heard that before. Right. So it,
0: it frames it for a Jewish audience. Like I said, that's a little piece of it that you kind of have to think about differently because the salt was strictly used for sacrifices. And if you go through any of the Torah, you're going to see the salt of the covenant, which is what the Jews would call it. And in first century, they definitely called it the salt of the covenant. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying you are the salt of the covenant, which makes me so happy. Rabbi Tarfan was asked, what do you do with tasteless salt? And here's his answer. He looks at his students and he says, well, you salt it with a mule's afterbirth. All right. So that's disgusting. But the more important part of this is mules are sterile. So he basically looked at his students afterward because they were all like dumbfounded because that is an absurd answer. Like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? Mules are sterile. (laughs) You don't have afterbirth. He basically said. If you're going to ask me ridiculous questions, you're going to get ridiculous answers. So what do you do with tasteless salt? You don't. That's absurd. Like there isn't tasteless salt. You can't be salt and be tasteless. So he, I, I think that's hilarious to frame it that way. Yeah, and once you explained to know-
1: it, it became funny. Like we're on a Zoom call right now and my eyebrows went up to the top of the screen when I was like, What did he say? <laughs> what was that answer? Right.
0: He said, <laughs> Yeah, you salt it with the mule's afterbirth. Yeah. You can't he's saying you can't salt unsalted salt. It's useless. It's a right. grain of sand. It doesn't it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So now moving on to the yod, because that's the next part of this. I wanted to keep it in context of the scripture, but uh that's when what was it, five goes through the Beatitudes, and then he goes, do not think I have come in 517. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I'm reading of the NIV, just P.S. for anyone who wants to follow along later. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. What's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet? The Yod. So now we're going to jump into this because we just talked about the Beatitudes. We just talked about this in frame of the kingdom belongs to the least, the smallest. So now I'm going to tell you a story. and It's a very quick story. It's a rabbinic tale from very far, far before Yeshua would have even entered into this story. But he would have known it because this is a child's tale to little children from rabbis and sages to encourage them. And so it's something that would have been taught, something he would have known. So in saying this statement, he's responding to something we don't even understand, but I'm going to help you. He says, I've come to fulfill it. What it actually translates here is not a single yod will pass from the law. It's the original translation, not a single yod, not the smallest letter. And we translated it into, people see yacht or jot because of the translation. Well, yod is actually what it is because they didn't have a J. It would have been a Y sound, Hebrew off doesn't have a J. So the translation kind of got mixed through the years into like smallest letter. Still means basically the same thing. But when you don't have this title on it, you kind of miss the meaning of this. There's a rabbinic story. And the story is called a Yod called out to God. And honestly, this is an oral story. Good luck finding it. I've been told it. I have no idea where the story came from. I just know that it's been passed and it's written in random scripts and scrolls throughout centuries. If you find it, please get back to me because I'm trying to find a hard copy of the story. But it says this, it says, a yod was taken from the Torah. A yod called out to God, the yod that was taken in the, in Genesis, uh, Genesis 17 from Sarai, the yod was taken to make her Sarah. And that yod called out to God from the beginning and said, Yahweh, Adonai, why? Like, why have you taken me from the Torah? When will I ever be put back in the Torah? I am the smallest of these, the least of these. And it's interesting because then you see in Numbers 13, as the story goes on, that a yod was added in Numbers 13. So it's taken in Genesis and it calls out to God, God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? Where does the, where do we see this? Okay, why have you, why have you gotten rid of me? Why have you taken me from the Torah? And the yod then we see that God doesn't forget about, that he adds the yod back in. In Numbers 13, I think verse 16 where he takes it, and this is where it gets beautiful. And for any of you who are believers in the Messiah, you're going to find this connection immediately. The Jews don't. He adds a yod, the beginning of Hoshea, giving it a y sound, Yeshua, Yeshua, Joshua. So he adds the yod back in in numbers. Numbers is when things were accounted for. So he's accounting for all this. And the yod is then reclaimed. And he adds it to the beginning of the name Hoshea, making it Yoshea you're getting Joshua, which is Yeshua. So the yod was reclaimed. The smallest, 10th letter of the alphabet in the Jewish terms, it looks kind of like a, a, it's a right hand being like this little tick mark. And that's the rabbinic story is God doesn't forget about the smallest of these. The yod was reclaimed. And when it was reclaimed, it was reclaimed. The beginning of the name Hosea, making it Joshua. That's when you see the yod come back. And he says, see, I don't forget. The New Testament, the Yod was added. Right. So, that being said, that literally made so much sense to me when we read it. And there's another little rabbinic tale that tacks onto that. And it says, it's again, the Yod cried out. So, I, the, there's a constant theme here. The Yod cries out to God. And this is a story with King Solomon. He says, God, which would have been Adonai, Adonai, the Yod cries, King Solomon has uprooted me from the Bible. He's taken me from, and God apparently answers back according to rabbinic tale and says, no, 1,000 Solomons will be uprooted, but not one single yod. These are stories that would have been in the temple time. These are stories that would have been in scrolls. These are stories that Yeshua himself would have known. So then you come back to Matthew and you read this and you suddenly understand something very different. I do not come that the law would be abolished don't come to abolish the law of the prophets i've come to obey them come to fulfill them for truly i tell you that until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest yod not the single yod will pass away god doesn't forget about the least of these single yod doesn't pass away especially from his law we're talking about the torah that it was given back to so in saying this he's teaching to an audience that understands holistically and fully what he is saying
1: that's what I was going to say. What you said was so holistic that it was tying back into, you know, blessed are the least of these and what he was saying, but then he was tying it into a kid's story that all of them would have heard to where they know the least of these isn't forgotten the small little yod. And all of that's being talked at the same time, dude, that you already said, like, you know, they'd come through the Babylonian exile, just where they were at with the law and all of these things and Jesus coming as a teacher and just, the depth within even knowing children's stories. And as you said, the ancient Near Eastern context being so important that, oh, here's what these people were thinking and what they were reading and the stories that they were telling each other and what their mindset was. Yeah, that insight just completely gives a a more full life to the words that we read in our scripture. It does.
0: That's why I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to tell them children's stories. <laughs> so, Yeah tiny little things that just like break you free of modern mindsets of, well, obviously he was because the arguments on this are vast and it's literally the, you know, he came and he was the fulfillment. Therefore this doesn't matter anymore. You have the Lutherans, Lutherans believe that, you know, this is binding that they almost read Yeshua's words here as uh, Luther did himself. And that was to be rebound to a law that was the Catholic church and You know, he was trying to separate from that. So he had problems with, you know, the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so you read it from like legalistic perspectives and you read it from really, really loose perspectives. It's like, yeah, we don't have to do anything with this anymore. And I'm like, those are such inaccurate readings when you understand that he was so in-depthly like acknowledging the culture and the audience. He was so intimate with them at this time. He was, first of all, speaking to his disciples. If we remember, he's actually talking specifically to his family, his disciples, not just everyone. He's talking about people who knew him because he was framing a kingdom mindset. And then he gives them these stories that they would know. And it's beautiful because it's like when your father comes and tells you little stories to help you understand something because you got a boo-boo. And now it makes it all better because you understand. It's this intimate, beautiful relationship. Not this, I'm come to just tell you rules and laws and things. But what it still does say is there is no question whatsoever that he upheld the law as ultimate authority, the law of God, not the Talmud, even though he does take from the Talmud many times in here, actually. There's a couple times in the Sermon on the Mount that we don't even understand. He's actually drawing from sources they would understand.
1: Yeah, the intertextuality throughout Matthew. I mean, throughout the whole of scripture, there's a lot of times when we think like, oh man, Jesus came up with that. And it's like, no, he's actually referencing something else that had been said that other people would know about. I didn't know about this kid's story, but as you're saying, the Talmud and and various things, definitely.
0: Right. But yeah, taken from Sarai to make her Sarah, added to Hosea to make him Joshua.
1: So I think that we are pretty much at the end of the time. I like that going through all of this, yeah, we didn't get into any arguments about it, which we, we don't. We can get really in depth, but I think that just looking and hearing the beauty that you are finding in the Sermon on the Mount, because it is our Messiah revealing where God is truly at in his relationship with us. And just all that I'm hearing, you're just like, I'm so excited. I'm exploding out of myself right now to tell you about these beautiful things that's here and just making it so much richer. So I appreciate you coming on for that. I did want to give you, if there's anything at this, the tail end, you have our audience before you. Is there anything that you would want to say to all of our lovely uh, church friends?
0: Oh my goodness. Our final ending. Man. I put you
1: on the spot with that one. You weren't expecting it.
0: Yeah. Um, we didn't get to talk about fasting. We should probably do another episode on that because that's a fun one too. But we didn't even make it out of Matthew 5. I would so, love to
1: have you back on that. Yeah, we'll plan that for another time.
0: And I don't know, maybe it would be possible to jump into the rest of it and just go through 45 minute sections. Of, maybe we'll get through the entire Sermon on the Mount in a four and five hour session.
1: It's taken us this whole series. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is all that Chris and I have been doing, so yes, we can definitely uh spend a lot of time in there. but any any uh, huh. I want to say I'm passing no words, thinking. that's not the words, any
0: I mean, there's just so much. i think I think the final things that I would say is because there's so much like detail and so much like for me when I'm studying little details like um Hillel being the uh, sage when Jesus was a boy. So I would go back and read Hillel's things and be like, oh, maybe he had things that would give way to what Yeshua was teaching because that would have been his sage of his area. So people want to look into that. Little things like that, knowing the ancient Jewish maxims that he was speaking on, those are beautiful and wonderful and helpful. But I think my final thing that I would really just kind of stab in is don't lose the beauty Because when you start losing that there was an actual group of people, that an actual Messiah was talking to, an actual man who had come to achieve this purpose, when you lose that there's a whole history here that this is based on, not just random out of nowhere coming to change the world, you have to frame it in the context of the people who were hearing And when you take it out of that context and try to just understand it from where you're coming from, you use an eisegetical lens and you lose the beauty and honestly, the the beautiful intimacy that our Messiah did have with his followers. And when you start losing the intimacy, you get into, you fall into a trap, which is what Paul does tell us. So when Saul is teaching, he's constantly telling us that the law is death, the law is this And he's usually talking about the law, the hedges. He's usually talking about the things that we are putting around the freeing words. Because when I read Yeshua tell me all of these things, I'm not hearing him say ever the law is unimportant. I'm not, I'm actually hearing him say exactly the opposite because you have to put yourself in the first century Jewish place. Say, what is he communicating to these people? Because he could never say what he never said. And that's just how it is. He said what he said for a purpose. And that can mean so much to us, but it can't mean something that it never meant. So I think I push for don't lose what's actually being communicated here because it is hopeful. And sometimes we get into a trap that is just so defeatist and despairing. And I get into that trap. I'm like, why do I read this? So despairing. I can't accomplish this. And as soon as I get into the, I can't accomplish mindset, I realize immediately I was never meant to accomplish this. I was meant to obey because those who love God obey him. And that's that's what Yeshua came to do. He came to obey his father. And that's beautiful and that's hopeful. So the second you start losing hope in these words, you're reading it wrong.
1: And I don't think there's any better ending to this episode. So thank you very much, Brittany, for coming on. And once again, we are your church friends. This is Murdoch and Brittany. Bye. <laughs> cool. I don't know how to stop this. It'll just keep recording until let me see. Record. Hit. No. Stop. Coming
0: this fall to GCTV, it's Jesus Christ, Agent of Justice. Thursday nights finally have a defense attorney who can carry the
1: weight of the world. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you know the law, so you decide. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Let me ask you all something. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the sabbath. I rest my case.
0: When no one else will defend you, he will pick up your case.
1: Can you please tell me whose portrait is on the denarius? I really can't see too well. Can you please answer the question, whose portrait is on the denarius? It's... it's... it's Caesar's. (laughs) Let it be known that the witness said it was Caesar's. So, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's.
0: When the cost is too much, you won't have to worry because he can pay the price.
1: You want the truth? I am the truth.
0: Tune in every Thursday night at 9 p.m. on GCTV for Jesus Christ, Agent of Justice. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to
1: fulfill it.